All right, good evening. Welcome to the mine. We are so glad you folks are here tonight. All right, since uh, Seth is down tonight, we're going to open up with a word of prayer. We're going to ask the Lord to heal him and bring him back to us. And we're going to ask the Lord to be with us in a special way tonight. And again, thank you all for being here tonight. Let's open up with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for your undivided attention in our lives. Lord, you so care about us and love us so deeply. And Lord, you're interested in each and every detail of our lives. And God, thank you for being such a big God that we can rely on for anything and everything in our life. And that there's nothing too hard for you and to handle in our lives. And yet, as big a God as you are, Lord, you're also very intimately acquainted with each and every one of us. And God, we thank you for that. And we pray tonight, Lord, as we just walk through this passage tonight, that, Lord, you would just stir our hearts and help us, Lord, to just continue to, to walk with you in a, in a greater way, to, to know you in a deeper way, to, to reach out to others in a more effective way. And just help us, Lord, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. And God, may your spirit just speak to us in, a, in an unusual way tonight. And may we leave this place just again thankful, Lord, that, that we can come here on Tuesday evenings and just open up the Bible and just dive into it. And uh, know, Lord, that you're behind it, you're supporting us, you're helping us each and every step of the way. And God, we miss Seth tonight and our worship team. We just pray you would raise Seth up uh, very quickly, help him to get over Uh, Lord, what has laid him low. Lord, we know he has such a tremendously busy schedule as well. And Lord, we just pray you would bring him back to full health so that he could be back with us. Not, Lord, just on Tuesdays, but just to be back and, and in the swing of things here around Cornerstone in all that he does. Lord, thank you for him, for all that... Uh, come out and are a part of our Tuesday night. We know that this doesn't happen with just me, but there's so many people behind the scenes and working, Lord, the sound equipment and the lights and everything else, Lord, that make this all possible. And we thank you for all of them. And Lord, bless us tonight as we look into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke, Luke. Wow. Luke. Okay, I'm getting off on a really bad start. Okay, let's go to James chapter 2 tonight. James chapter 2. We are going through this series in the book of James, and we have now gotten into chapter 2. As we approach the book of James, the book of James, I think, is calling us to a radical faith. I think that's why the book of James resonates with so many Christians, not just because of its practicality, it's just right down there on our everyday level that we live on, but also it sort of calls us to live on such a higher plane. And, and for most of us, that's a, that's a cool challenge. That's one that we want to accept that challenge, and we want to ask the Lord to help us to rise to that challenge. We have already seen in the book of James chapter 1 that James talks to us about a radical way of dealing with trials when he says, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials because we know that God will build some kind of purpose out of those trials. 
We saw two weeks ago that James talks to us about a radical way to deal with temptation and how to prevent the temptations of life from overrunning us and and maybe even how to prevent those temptations from coming at us in certain ways. And so he talked to us about that. And then last week we looked at this radical relationship that we should have with the Word of God in our lives as well. So tonight, when we come to James chapter 2, he's also talking to us about something radical. He's talking to us about a radical gathering of people called the church. And, and what he wants to begin to talk to the church about, God's people, is simply that he wants us, when we come together as God's people, to be so different from anything that the world does, anything that the world can do, and anything that people can find in the world so that there will be this attraction, there will be this drawing to ultimately Christ, but through His people, because this radical gathering of people called the church is different from anything else out there in the world. And what James is going to begin to talk to us tonight about is is just in the way we treat each other and the way we treat people when they come into the church. And James is basically saying that the church should be a place that no matter whether we're male or female, uh, whether we're young or old, whether we're short or tall, whether we're round or thin, whether our skin color is this color or that color, whether we come from this economic background or that economic background and that social place or that social place or whatever, that the church is a place where all those people, no matter who we are and where we came from and what we are now, can come together in the presence of God with the power of God and we're going to form something so different than what the world could ever do. And that's what James is going to talk to us tonight about. Notice, I'm just going to read these 13 verses tonight of James chapter 2 and then I just want to dive in and share a few thoughts with you tonight. My brothers and sisters... So he's talking here to Christians, to the church. Do not show prejudice if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and a poor person enters in filthy clothes, do you pay attention to the one who is finely dressed and say, you sit here in a good place and to the poor person You stand over there or sit on the floor? If so, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Did not God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich oppressing you and dragging you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the good name of the one you belong to? But if you fulfill the royal law as expressed in this scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For the one who obeys the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a violator of the law. Speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that gives freedom. For judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. A radical gathering of people called the church. A place where people should be treated differently than the way we or they are treated in the world. Because of the way Jesus treated people. And the way the Bible teaches us that we should treat one another. And that God always wanted his people to be this radical gathering where certain things happen and certain things don't. Different from the world. The connection of chapter 2 with chapter 1 where we were last week is simply this. James was calling us to a radical relationship to the Word of God. And the reason that all of us as Christians need a growing relationship with God's Word is so that I begin to see things from God's perspective and not from the world's perspective. In fact, notice at the end of chapter 1, verse 27, where the very last thing he talks about in chapter 1 is keeping oneself unspotted or unstained from the world. And I think one of the things he's talking about there is don't allow this system in the world that does not accept God, does not believe in God, does not try to live by God's principles, do not allow that world system to influence your thinking. Do not allow them to cloud your thinking because from God's perspective, there's a way I think and then there's a way that most of them in the world think and Usually it's very different. And the only way that even as a Christian I'm going to really get God's perspective and be able to lay that side by side with the world's perspective is through a growing relationship with the Word of God. And I think that's why in the context here, that last passage of chapter 1 talking about our relationship to God's word as a seed that's planted as a mirror and as the perfect law of liberty is butted up against the beginning of chapter 2 because also if I'm allowing the word of God to truly work in my life it's not only going to make a difference in my relationship with God on a vertical level it's going to make a difference in the way I treat other people on a horizontal level I have always shared this principle And I believe it's biblical. If my relationship with God is what it should be, then my relationship with people will be what it should be. And I'm not necessarily saying that that means everything's always rosy with those people. It may be that you need to put up a boundary in your life with a certain individual. But that's biblical. So we gain insight into our relationships with others by keeping our relationship with God where it needs to be, you see. With that said, I want to share with you as we begin tonight a verse that Jesus shared with the disciples in John chapter 7, verse 24. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. And here's what Jesus said. Do not judge according to external appearance 
but judge with proper judgment. Do not judge with by external appearance, but judge with proper judgment. And we're going to get into that here in just a minute. And the reason why that verse is important as we lay sort of the foundation for tonight is let's not forget that even as Jesus, the Son of God, walked here on the earth, there were people that only judged him by his external appearance. And when they judged him by his external appearance, and he's going around claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and all of this, and they're even looking externally, they're coming to a conclusion, eh, claims to be the Messiah, nah. Yeah, maybe he does a miracle every once in a while, heals somebody, whatever, but we can explain that other ways. But, but this Jesus, he, he doesn't come from the, from the town we want our Messiah to come from. He hasn't been educated in the schools that we want our Messiah to come from. He doesn't have the right this that we want our Messiah to come from. He's not wealthy enough to be our Messiah. He, He doesn't fit our standard of what our Messiah should be like. He's even willing to suffer. He's even willing to die. He does not fit our mold. Therefore, we reject him. And Jesus says to his people, we've got to be very careful that we do not just go through life making judgments, having that, that discernment, and it's just all about the externals because that's exactly what James is talking about here. He's not talking about not judging because even Jesus said, John seven twenty four, judge with proper judgment. Which leads me to my first point that actually precludes everything that's going on here in chapter 2, but I thought it's important enough that I need to bring it up. And the reason I thought it's important to bring it up is because any time the Bible talks about judging others, here's the world's perspective. And what I am going to attempt to do tonight is going to be a little bit different than the way I normally teach. I want to lay side by side as we go down this passage what the world's perspective is and what God's perspective is and see them laid side by side. Here's the world's perspective. Don't judge. It's wrong. I mean, we hear people all the time saying, don't judge me. You have no right to judge me. Don't judge me, you know. And that's the world's perspective. Here's God's perspective. It's wise to make judgments based on character. Now, we're going to get into chapter 2 of James, where James says it's wrong to make judgments about people, good or bad, based just on externals. But if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I don't think it's, there's no way that anyone can come to the conclusion that the Bible does not teach that God wants us to make judgments in our life. And let's just use a word that maybe is more acceptable today, discernment. God is simply saying that he wants his people to make judgments about other people When it comes to their character, for instance, in the book of Proverbs, there are many verses that talk to young people before marriage about the kind of person you should be looking for before you enter into marriage. And it's all about their character. You're looking for a wife. You're looking for a husband. You want to make judgments about who you're going to enter into the most important human relationship with. And you better make some judgments. You better have some discernment about that decision. 
but it should be based on character. And God's word is simply saying it's wise to make judgments about other people based on character. In fact, the book of Proverbs has many verses where it says we are very unwise if we have something very important that needs to be done and we hand it off to somebody who's unreliable or unfaithful. God would simply say if that person proves to be what they are by their character. They can't be relied upon. They can't be faithful to anything. And yet we hand them an important assignment and they don't follow through with it. Who are we to blame? God would simply say, you should have been a little wiser about making a judgment, about entrusting this very important thing to somebody that as long as you've known them, they can't be trusted. They can't be reliable. God's word talks to us about Is it wise to tell somebody something in confidence that you don't want to be spread and yet they have a reputation of being a gossip? God would say it's wise to make judgments based upon someone's character. I I would never share something that somebody said to me in confidence and share it with anybody, but especially if I feel like there's something that not necessarily nobody said I shouldn't share I'm very careful about who I share certain information with because I'm going to base what I share and who I share it with on their character. And God says, that's okay. That's acceptable. That's not the kind of judgment that James is talking about. So the world's perspective is, don't judge me. It's always wrong to judge me. And God would say, No, it's wise to make judgments throughout our life based upon people's character. Based upon their character. But secondly, James is telling us here, the world's perspective is that certain people deserve preferential treatment. He uses the illustration of, and it was very common in James' day because churches weren't that big and there were only so many seats and, and they would only reserve the seats for the important people and the people that weren't deemed as important. They either had to sit on the floor or stand during the service. And so James is giving them an illustration that they've seen probably many times. And James says, okay, let me set this up. We can all picture it in our minds. Two people come into our assembly, our church. Ushers, the first one to meet them. Can I just say to all of you who usher around here, thank you. We love, we love our ushers. So I'm not here to bash ushers, okay? I love ushers, just this usher, okay? And the usher in the book of James meets this, this guy who comes in, and man, he is dressed to the nines. He's got the bling. He's got it all. He just looks important. And James says, here's what the usher does. As soon as he, he gives him the best seat in the house. And he's making the judgment that you deserve the best seat in the house because of only external factors. James says, and here comes another guy into the assembly. This guy's got tattered, shabby, shaggy clothes on because it's all that he can afford. And James says, and here's the way he's treated. Hey, find a seat wherever you can, all right? I'm tending to this guy up here. And the world... We know it. We live in it. The world in which we live, their perspective is, hey, certain people deserve preferential treatment. They've earned it. Here's God's perspective. 
all people are of equal value to God. And God's perspective is we should never treat people better or worse for selfish reasons. That's God's perspective. That wasn't happening here. Now the world's perspective is also this. That there are class distinctions that must be maintained. And yet God's perspective is is this. Class distinctions disappear in Christ. When God's people come together, all that class stuff that works and, and is manipulated and is used in the world system out there should disappear when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what was so cool about the early church when a master and a servant could sit in the same church together side by side. That, that could only happen through Christ and through the power of Christ and through what God was doing in both of their lives. And that's what the Bible teaches us. In fact, just so you think I'm not making this stuff up, keep your finger there in James chapter 2 and go back to the book of Galatians just to give you a couple verses that support this. The book of Galatians. See if I can remember where these verses are. Yeah, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ. You see, when God built the church, when God made the church, it was to be this radical gathering of people where there were no class distinctions. Where it wasn't male, female. Where it wasn't rich, poor. Where it wasn't Jew, Greek. Where it wasn't this color and that color. But where all could come together no matter what their class, what their social, what their economic, what their background was. And where we all realized we were one in Christ because God's perspective is all people have equal value to me. In the world, all people are of not equal value. In fact, we even live in a world today where people begin to talk about, well, this person's really not valuable to society anymore, so why don't we just talk about getting rid of them because they don't really serve any purpose anymore. And God says, all people are of equal value to me. And I hope to, if you hear my heart, not use the word spin in a negative connotation like we hear, but I, I hope to spin this chapter tonight or this passage to truly encourage you. Because maybe... Somebody here tonight just needed to be reminded that you are as valuable to God as I am or anybody else is here tonight. God loves you just as much as he does me or anybody else at Cornerstone or in Chandler or the whole country. All people are of equal value. Go over to the book of Colossians, just a few books over. Go through Galatians and then Ephesians and then Philippians and then Colossians to Colossians chapter, I think it's chapter 3, yeah, chapter 3 verse 11. Here's another verse that talks about class distinctions disappear in Christ. 
Paul says to the Colossians. And so see, this was a message to all these local churches because God wanted his church to be different. So Paul says, Colossians 3.11, Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So the world's perspective is, don't judge, it's wrong. God's perspective, it's wise to make judgments based on character. world's perspective, certain people deserve preferential treatment. God's perspective, do not treat people better or worse for selfish reasons. All people are of equal value with God. The world's perspective, there are class distinctions that must be maintained. God's perspective, class distinctions disappear in Christ. Back to James chapter 2. As you study this passage, you get the distinct impression that the picture also that James wants to paint about the rich guy who walks into this assembly is that by the way he is dressed and by the way he is behaving himself as he enters into the assembly, he is flaunting what he has to get preferential treatment. In other words, in his mind, I'm coming because I'm expecting to be treated differently. And that's the world's perspective out there. Flaunt what you have to get ahead. Show people what you've achieved so that they'll be impressed. And they will treat you differently because of what you display. That's exactly what this man was doing in the illustration. It talks about him wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. If you study this and you study the original language, he's wearing the flashiest, shiniest stuff he can put on. Because he's not coming to this assembly to really worship Christ. He's coming to this assembly to be worshipped. He's coming to this assembly to show off. He's coming to this assembly to gain some preferential treatment. Here's God's perspective. God's perspective isn't flaunt what you have to get ahead. God's perspective is use what you've been entrusted with to bless others. Use what you've been entrusted with to bless others. We see that right here in the book of James. In James chapter 1 verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To care for orphans and widows in their misfortune. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. A verse that I shared with you a couple weeks ago. Let me just repeat this. I'm just going to turn here real quickly. Jesus said to those who were following him and to this man who invited him to dinner, when you host a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors so you can be invited by them in return and get repaid. But when you host an elaborate meal, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And then back in James chapter 2, notice in verse 15, a verse we're going to get to next week. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them what the body needs, what good is it? And all through the Bible and all through the book of James, God's perspective is this. If I'm blessing you, then I want you to be a conduit of blessing to others. I don't want it to be all about you and hoarding it yourself. And using it just for yourself to build yourself up, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. After he had 
built barns and then had to build bigger barns and bigger barns to hold all of his stuff. You know what Jesus said. He said, you're a fool. Because tonight, your soul's going to be required of you. And then, where's all that stuff going to go? It's just going to go and be passed down to people that probably don't even know you. Really? Is that what you want to live for? Is that how you want to live your life? It's a challenge to all of us, especially, I think, in America, to use what we've been entrusted with to bless others and not just for ourselves. Notice also, as you move down through this passage, notice in verse 4, James says, If this is the way these two guys are treated when they came into your assembly, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And again, the judgments that were made had nothing to do with character. The judgments that were made by the assembly and by the usher, by the first person that greeted these guys when they walked into the door had everything to do with just the externals and nothing to do with what really mattered to God. And the world's perspective is, treat others as a means to an end. Develop relationships with people because going against what Jesus said in Luke 14, I'll scratch your back so that you'll scratch my back. And the reason why James ends verse 4 with, you become judges with evil motives is because he's saying... God understands what your motive is. Your motive is you want to treat this person really well because you're hoping then you're going to get something back for that. And that somehow you, through that relationship, can later on somehow leverage that relationship for selfish reasons. Which goes back to the principle from God's perspective that God never wants us to treat people better or worse for selfish reasons ever. And yet sometimes that's our motive. Because that's the world's perspective. Treat others as a means to an end. God's perspective is love people as the end. No ulterior motives. God wants us to so love people that we sacrifice, we pour out our lives, we, we bless them, we become a source of blessing without ever expecting anything in return. And if we have the motivation that we're doing this because of what we think we're going to get back, then Jesus would say, you have your reward. Jeff, you have your reward. Your reward is whatever you get back. But like he said in Luke 14, when we truly live an unselfish life, we are blessed because Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we receive a, a blessing, we receive a fulfillment deep inside of our soul that no amount of getting can ever give us, but giving can. Even Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And Jesus Christ himself and the way he lived his life on earth it's just a great example. If we just study the life of Jesus, we will see all these perspectives. Jesus never treated people differently based upon where they lived. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to say, you know what? 
those Samaritans that the Jews really couldn't get along with, Jesus made it a point to go through Samaria. And you know how women were sort of looked down on in Jesus' society. They were looked at as second class. Jesus always made it a point to talk to women, to reach out to women, to have women as part of his, his ministry team. He never treated women any differently than he treated men. He never treated people of different skin color differently. He never treated people who were on the other side of the river differently than the ones on this side of the river. All through the life and ministry of Jesus, we have a living, breathing example of how Jesus reaches out to all because class distinctions disappear in Christ. In fact, before we move on, I want to take you back to a really powerful passage of Scripture that really supports what James is saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let me just insert this real quick. Please don't misunderstand where my heart is tonight as I try to teach on this passage tonight. There are some very godly, wealthy people. The Bible doesn't condemn wealthy people. It condemns the love of money. And there are many godly people who have been blessed with world's goods that do use their resources to bless others and to be a conduit of blessing. But in this passage, let's just not forget where James is coming from. James is talking about the way this person came into the assembly, which doesn't generalize the way any, every wealthy person is going to live their life and come into the assembly. And James is talking about the way these people were treated just based on externals, not based on character. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 26. And again, a general principle, but not always true. But the Bible here in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul says, Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his presence. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's just saying, you know what? If you looked around at the church as a whole, I mean the whole body of Christ all over the world, Paul says, most of us, as far as the world standards go, aren't the smartest, aren't the ones of privileged position, aren't the ones in a certain status of the world, but that's the way God works. Because many times those people don't even sense their need for God. And God then can sort of turn the philosophy of the world upside down. That's why Jesus said, hey, the first is going to be last one day. Because those who the world thinks are first might not be first in my kingdom. And those to whom the world looks down upon and says, you're a nobody. God may say, you're first in my kingdom. Because again, the way God works, 
It's upside down. I like what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, God must really love common people because he made so many of them. That's what Paul is saying here. He said, if we really looked at it, most of us are just our average Joes and Janes. We're, we're, the, the world doesn't know who we are, you know. None of us, at least I don't think there's anybody that comes to the mine on Tuesday that when we leave here, there's going to be paparazzi out there, you know, snapping our pictures as we leave the mine because, you know, uh, people can't wait to hear about what happened to us today. I mean, the world, you know, doesn't follow us around and really care about our everyday activities, but God does. And so God says, let's be careful. Let, let's have a growing relationship with the Word of God because if we don't, we're going to start adopting the world's perspective rather than God's perspective on how we live life, how we treat other people, how we may even look at ourselves because the world may have beat us down to the point where we don't think we're very special. We don't think we're of any value. And God says something totally different. Back to James chapter 2. Life is keeping up with those around you from the world's perspective. That's what he moves into In verse 5, when he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, did not God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? It's exactly what Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 1. But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich oppressing you and dragging you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the good name of the one you belong to? He's giving us that philosophy of life many times, again, that comes from the world's perspective is, i got to keep up with those around me because the world defines us as what we have, who we are, what our position is, what our role is in society. And so i got to keep up. And again, I apologize if there's any Joneses here, but you got to keep up with the Joneses. That's the world's perspective. And we've got to, we, we make some really unwise choices in trying to keep up with everyone around us. That's the world's perspective. God's perspective is life is not keeping up with those around you. Life is knowing Jesus Christ. That's what life is. In fact, Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is life, that they know the one and only true God and his Son whom he has sent. Jesus said that's life. When the disciples went out on their first ministry tour, And God gave them power to be able to heal and to cast out demons. Man, they came running back to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, you're never going to believe what happened. Like, he doesn't know. He's God. But anyway, they're like, Jesus, you're never going to believe what happened. Man, we were healing people and and we were casting out demons. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't, Don't rejoice and get all hyped up that you can heal and you can cast out demons. Here's what he said. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus said, you want to get excited about something? Because, yeah, healing people, casting out demons, that's cool, but you realize I gave you the power to do that anyway. The more important thing is not what you do. It's who you are, or more importantly, whose you are. That's why John, just in, in 1 John, he just got to the point where he couldn't, he couldn't contain himself any longer. He said, beloved How cool is it that we are the children of God? That's life. Life is knowing Jesus Christ. There are so many people 
who've gotten caught up in the way the world operates, that they spend their whole life trying to keep up with those around them, and they dig themselves into the ground, they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. They, their life is just, it's this never-ending, i got to keep up, i got to keep up, i got to keep up. And here's Jesus who says, come unto me, all ye that are laboring and, and need rest and are weary, I'll give you rest, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And somehow even Christians, we're going through life and we go through life with this such heavy burden and yoke, Jesus didn't place that there. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Learn from me. I'll give you rest. We need to be at rest in knowing Jesus Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You also notice in this passage that the world's perspective comes out loud and clear. That God's blessing is equated with earthly material possessions prestige and power if they even believe in God and they believe that God exists and they believe that God blesses the only way they look at God's blessing is what's he doing for me here on earth it's all about possessions that's how they equate God's blessing it's about power it's about prestige keep your finger in James and go back to the gospel of Matthew To Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. You know where I'm headed. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. If the world's perspective is that God's blessing is equated with earthly material possessions, prestige, and power, the Bible teaches us where God's blessing is equated with. Jesus just spells it right out for us. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 2. Then he began to teach them by saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. Now, as I've said before, folks, It's not that I believe that God never blesses us materially, that he never blesses us with position and all of that here on earth, but the Bible clearly teaches that God's greatest blessings and rewards for his children are not going to be here on earth. They are going to be in heaven because Jesus wants us to enjoy them forever and ever. And if he gave us his best blessings down here, then we would have to leave them behind when we die or when Jesus came in the rapture. And Jesus said, now I'm not going to do that. I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to save my best blessings that you can enjoy forever and ever and ever. Back to the book of James chapter 2. 
The world's perspective is you positioned yourself to achieve your own agenda. Verse 8. If you fulfill the royal laws expressed in this scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. And we can try to position ourselves in this world so that we can push our own agenda and achieve our own agenda. Or here's God's perspective. You've been given your position to serve others. Which is really what James is saying when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is that the way I would want to be treated? Is that the way I would want to be dealt with? Is that the kind of greeting I would like to get if I came into church? So God says, if you've been given a position, don't use that position for selfish means. Use it to serve others. Since we're in, and this is the only political comment you'll hear from me, because I am not one of those pastors that, well, we won't go there either. It would be nice if we lived in a country where all of our elected politicians used their position to serve the people that they represented rather than themselves. Yeah? But you know what? That's true in the church. Pastors, since I am one, I'm going to talk about us. We have to be careful that we've been given a great responsibility, but we've also been given a great privilege. We've got to be careful as pastors, the Bible says, that we don't use our position for self, but to serve. That's true for all of us as Christians. That's not the world's perspective. world's perspective is you climb up that ladder, whatever that ladder is, and you get to that position so that You can be all about you. And again, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says, I came down from the highest position to serve you. I laid my glory aside. I took upon myself the apron of a servant. I washed my disciples' feet. I went to the cross willingly and died. His whole life, was about using his position even as God to serve others, then how can we turn around as God's children and say, God, I won't do that. That's beneath me. Jesus would go, everything I did was beneath me. I left the glories of heaven. As soon as I set foot out of heaven into Bethlehem and was born in Bethlehem, everything I did from there on, it was beneath me. But I did it because I wanted to show by my life that I want those who follow me to use the position that I give you to serve those around you, not to serve our own agenda. Then we come into a very interesting part as we close tonight. Notice he says in verse 9 again, if you show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. Well, first of all, the world's going to have a problem with that word sin. And then he says, for the one who obeys the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And you see where he's going there. So here's the world's perspective. That it's okay to interpret the Bible in light of the cultural norm. That's the way many people even in churches today, at least they're called churches, that's how they view the Bible. It's not the word of God. 
It has no authority over my life. I don't have to really... And, and, and when I look at this and I begin to interpret it, I interpret it in light of the culture that I live in. And, it, you know, a lot of this stuff that the Bible says, it was in an old culture and stuff. It, it's, it's all old hat. No, whatever the culture says is okay. Now, that's the way I interpret it. I interpret the Bible through the lens of culture, not the other way around. Here's God's perspective. My word will never conform to the cultural norm, and it's unalterable. God basically says, I don't care what the culture says. Here's my word. And the psalmist said, your word, Lord, is forever settled in heaven. It's not going to change. That's why the book of Revelation ends with anybody who adds to the word of God or takes away from the word of God is on very dangerous ground. That's why the Bible talks about the changeless nature of God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever because he's not going to change his mind about what he said. And it doesn't matter how culture evolves and how man evolves and changes and all these different things that come. God's word is timeless. And that's why he goes on to say, you know, the world's perspective is some people choose from the Bible what you like and reject what you don't like. They look at the Bible as sort of like a buffet. God, I'm going into your Bible, and I I like that verse. That's good. I don't like that, so I'm just going to throw that out. And we begin to form our own theology and belief system and philosophy of life based on our view of the Word of God. God's perspective is the Bible is the indivisible word of God. That's why you'll notice in verse 10, he says, one obeys the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it because it's all tied together. And you can't say, I'm going to accept this part of God's word that I like and I'm going to reject that part because God says it's all intertwined. You can't do that. I mean, we can try to do that. We can try to compartmentalize God's word and say, I like that part of the Bible. I don't like this part of the Bible. God says that doesn't work. Because it all fits together. It all ties together. It is all indivisible. I can't pick in and out and choose what I like and what I don't like. The world does that. But God says, this group of people that gather in my name need to be a radical group of people different. From the way the world looks at things. And that's why in this passage he also touches on that the world's perspective is that certain sins are trivial and can be dismissed. And we might, we might not admit it, but we Christians do the same thing. We rate sin. Jesus here, or James is saying, you know, some people say, well, I don't commit murder. Yeah, but did you commit adultery? Well, some of us, would, well, they're both big sins. So what James would say is, yeah, but isn't showing preferential treatment to that rich guy who came into your assembly because you based your judgment just on externals? God would say that's just as wrong and that's just as much a sin as that is because it all ties together. See, the world's perspective is certain sins are trivial and can be dismissed. God's perspective is all sin is serious and can never be dismissed. Because all sin affects us. And all sin, if we don't look at it properly and biblically from God's perspective, it can keep us from becoming what God created us to be. Which leads to verse 12. Where the world's perspective is, the only one I'm accountable to is me. 
And James says, speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that gives freedom. James is reminding us that accountability to others is healthy and there is coming a day of accountability to God. That's God's perspective. We might not like the word accountability, but James is reminding us of it. There is coming a day of accountability. So again, take that word judge out of your translation if that word really freaks you out. And just insert the word accountability in there or being accountable to God. God is just simply saying that when we live our lives, we have to remember we give an account to God for the way we've lived our lives. That's part of the reason why the world dismisses God, dismisses the existence of God, because if God does exist and his word is true, then there is a God that I have to be accountable to. I don't want to be accountable to God. So I'm just going to pretend like he doesn't exist. They're going to be surprised one day. Next, you'll notice that the world's perspective is that freedom is being able to do what I want to do. And from a biblical perspective, again, he reminds us that God has given us his law because it's the only true freedom we have. And that God's perspective is that freedom is only found in obedience to Christ. That God is not this cosmic killjoy up there in heaven who's given us his word so that we can enjoy life. And if we just would do everything as we're doing, oh, we'll never have any fun. No, God is simply saying, if you get involved in what I'm encouraging you to get involved with, and you restrain from getting involved in the things I'm telling you you shouldn't get involved with, that's really living. And you will find a freedom that you will never find if you just go out and do whatever you want to do. Because the Bible teaches that Sin and disobedience to God is slavery. And God doesn't want his children to be slaves. Jesus said, I've come to set you free. And if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And as we grow as a Christian, we will not look at God's word as some book of restraint that just ties us up and and doesn't allow us to truly experience life but as a book that truly gives freedom. And if we embrace this book and we saturate our minds with this book and we live out the principles of this book, then we will experience what real freedom is all about. Which leads us to verse 13, where the world's perspective is, I will have the last word, or they, speaking of others, will have the last word. And God says, no, I'll have the last word. And I don't want you to look at this negatively. See, a lot of times we think, oh, God, God's going to have the last word. That's a negative thing. No, notice what James says at the very end. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what he says earlier there in verse 13 is simply that we're going to get back in the world the way we are. If we're hypercritical of people, if, if we give them no slack, if we're always breathing down their neck, then most of the people, when they get the chance, they're going to be pretty critical of us because we were critical of them. But if we give people a break, if we're understanding, if we go the extra mile... If we're compassionate with them, usually, not always, but general biblical principle, then we're going to get treated by others that we run with 
the same way normally that we've treated them. So James is just simply saying, if, if you've been a person who's been totally merciless to the people around you, don't expect when you need mercy that they don't give it to you either. But James does end with this very positive statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. And he wants to remind us as he closes out this whole section on it, talking about this radical gathering of people called the church, that he wants the church more than anything else to let God have the last word in your life. And he means that from a totally positive perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, for instance, you might go to a doctor, and the doctor may say, you know, we've run these tests, whatever. What you have, sorry, we can't help you. There's nothing humanly that we can do. And God may choose to have the last word and go, healed, boom, it's over. God, let him have the last word. Don't, don't, don't let yourself or others have the last word in your life. Let God have the last word. God says about death, hey, yeah, if Jesus doesn't come in my lifetime, I'm going to die. Yeah, but let God have the last word. For to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, is to be present with the Lord. If my earthly house of this tabernacle is destroyed, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, I have a building with God in heaven, not made by human hands. And God's going to resurrect this body one day. Let God have the last word on death. Death isn't the last word of my life. My resurrection life with Christ in eternity in heaven is the last word in my life. You see, when James tells us mercy triumphs over judgment, he's simply reminding us in a very positive way, let God have the last word in your life. Let him be the one to define your life. Because this whole passage has been talking about the way we treat each other, the way we are treated. And many times in this world, we're not treated the way God treats us. And so because we're not treated by others the way God treats us or the way God is going to treat us and and bless us or whatever, we begin to adopt the world perspective that, who am I? What am I? I'm no big deal. I'm not that valuable. I'm not that important. And listen to what God says about you tonight. God says to all of us, I am a unique creation of God. I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. I am a child of God. I have been adopted by God. I am a friend of Jesus Christ. I am God's workmanship. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am a member of the body of Christ. I have been set free through the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been forgiven. I am complete in Christ. I have direct access to God. I am free from condemnation. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am a citizen of heaven. I am a partaker of a heavenly calling. I have been appointed to bear fruit. I am the light of the world. I am the salt of the earth. I am an heir of God. I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I have been given precious and magnificent promises. I have eternal life. I have been given the mind of Christ. I have not been given the spirit of fear. I am a saint. I have been rescued from Satan's domain. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Friends, that's who we are. Let God have the last word in our lives. Let's close in prayer.
God, as we leave here tonight, I, I just pray that each of us, first of all, first of all, thank you for loving us. Lord, we may not be anyone special to the world or in this world system. But Lord, we are very special to you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be part of your body, the church. And Lord, help us, even from this passage tonight, maybe not to look at the church the same way that we did before. Help us to look at the church and being part of the church as such a privilege of being part of this this radical gathering of people that live on such a different plane and, and live life on such a different level than the way this world system operates. And that the way we look at ourselves and the way we treat others is so radically different that, Lord, we are creating a movement, and we are creating a local assembly, and we are creating a group of people that will be so attractive to the people in Chandler and Gilbert and Ahwatukee and and all over this valley. Because, Lord, I know that your word teaches us that people out there are looking in this world for what they can only find in Jesus Christ. And therefore, help us as your followers, as your disciples, as your children, to so reflect Christ, to so be Jesus Christ to others and to every person that walks through these doors, that they will find something at Cornerstone and every church in this valley that preaches Jesus and stands on the Bible, that they will want to become a part of that group. Because what they're finding there and what they're learning there and what they're experiencing there is nothing like they could ever experience anywhere else in this world. God, burden us with the fact that there are so many more people that need to become aware of this. And there are so many people out there in the world who are searching for their significance and their purpose in worldly, earthly things. And yet, Lord, what they really need and who they really need is Jesus. Help us, Lord, as a church to be that light that points them to Christ. And Lord, I'm sure every one of us in this room tonight could say as we've went through life, we've gotten beat down and kicked and Lord, we've had a lot of hurts and unkind things happen to us. And Lord, there may have even been a time in our life where we allowed others to have the last word of our lives. We even maybe even allowed ourselves to have the last word. Lord, I pray tonight that as we leave here, that we all have a renewed commitment to let you have the last word in our lives. Because, Lord, before we can truly see others the way you want us to see them, by treating others like we would want to be treated, we've got to see ourselves the way you see us. 
And help us, Lord, to begin to do that again tonight. We pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Guys, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. See you next week.